care, right? And that means that he's going to be giving oversight and care by the presbytery as he pursues the education and the training uh, for his ministerial calling. Ordinarily, this would happen when a man desires to take seminary courses to be a pastor. Now, seminary cor- seminaries offer courses for people who haven't necessarily desired that they want to be a pastor yet, and that's okay. So it's not as if you can't start taking some seminary courses before this happens. But ordinarily, if you have plans to do that, you're going to be consulting with your session. You're going to be getting their advice and counsel. And usually about the same time before a man goes to seminary, he gets taken under the care of presbytery. And at that time, he's interviewed by the presbytery. And if you look at section 2, it says, It is of particular importance that the presbytery inquire as to the grace of God in him and whether he be of such holiness of life as is requisite in a minister of the gospel. It's therefore their duty to examine him respecting his Christian life service, faith life service, and the motives influencing him to desire the sacred office. Right, so that's essentially what the presbytery does. It interviews him and kind of examines him with respect to those things. So we'll ask the man, are you married? What's your married life like? What's your family worship pattern look like? Why do you want to be a pastor? Okay, what, what's your desire? What's your hopes? What's your expectations for being a pastor? Right? And normally by the time he gets up on the floor, the committee that is entrusted with these things have already interviewed him and has a good idea of where he's come from. Some guy comes to us and says, hey, I want to be a pastor. Well, why is that? Well, you know, my dad told me I would never amount to anything. And, you know, he was, a, he was, a, he was an elder in the church. I'm going to prove him wrong. I'm going to go become pastor. What do you think we'd say to that guy? Say, look, <laughs> you're pursuing the ministry for motives that aren't good. You're trying to prove your dad wrong. you got a chip on your shoulder. Now, is it always wrong to kind of have a chip on your shoulder and want to prove somebody wrong? No, sometimes harnessed in the right way and, you know, put a check around it. That can motivate people to do well, right? But at the same time, it's a kind of a dangerous motivator uh, because you're not really motivated to serve in love. You're motivated because of something in yourself. And this is really, really crucial, um, because sometimes these, don't, these things don't come out until later. But any officer who wants to serve in the church, to the degree that he wishes to serve for something in himself, he's going to be ineffective and at times destructive. Many men pursue office so that they, because of some insecurity they have. Right? My dad never thought I'd amount to anything. Or nobody thinks I'm very smart. And if I have this office, I can have personal security about myself, my ego... And I'm okay because I have this office. That's a ticking time bomb. Because if that's your motive, the minute somebody disagrees with you, what happens? Especially another officer, if you're working out in the context of disagreement. What happens? What happens if we're depending upon being right as our confidence in ourselves as a person? Yeah. You're not just telling me that I'm wrong about this issue. You interpret that as you're attacking me personally. You're attacking my competency. You're attacking my self-worth. By the way, this is something all of us as human beings need to be very, very aware of, especially when it comes to being right or wrong. You have to create, the best way I can put it is a professional distance between yourself and the issues you're talking about. 
especially if you are really strongly in favor of something or strongly opposed, especially because those opinions are how they affect you. An officer always has to put distance between themselves and the stuff they're dealing with and always be thinking, okay, it's not first about me and who I am. It's about the church. I humble myself. I put my feelings aside and I listen to my brothers, right? And that takes a lot of self-discipline because even when you're very self-conscious about doing that, there's a little devil inside of you, right inside your flesh, who says, ah, see, they don't, they don't like you because they don't like your opinion. Now, we're all going to struggle with this to some degree, right? But when we have men that are very self-centered and self-oriented in that, uh, it can be very, very dangerous. So examining a man's motives are very, very important. At the same time, can you really take a spiritual microscope and look at somebody's heart? No, you can't. But this is so crucial, more important than the gifts he has, even his ability to speak and teach and preach, even though that's very crucial. More important than that is, is this a humble person that is motivated through love of Jesus and serving? Another reason this is so important, being an officer in the church, especially means um, being a minister, means you're going to suffer, period. Right? The devil hates Jesus, and he hates nothing more than when Jesus is preached. And if you're going to preach Jesus to people and be appointed and endowed with formal authority to do so, you've got a target on your back by the devil, and he's going to come after you. And if you're not motivated to serve through love of Jesus, you're not going to be able to endure suffering. If you're motivated by anything earthly, any status that you can obtain, you might enjoy that like for a few days after you're first ordained, like, hey, I'm a pastor. This is awesome. Then the devil comes after you, right? And the great test of our Christian life, and we'll see a little bit of this today in Revelation, is do we love Jesus more than we're pained and hurt by our sufferings? Do we love him more than we're pained by our sufferings? Because suffering can be something that says, makes us say, look, I know I'm called to do this, but this hurts. I don't want to do it anymore. Weight in the balance. Do we count the glory of heaven and of Jesus as of greater value than the things of the earth? The joy of heaven versus the pain of trial. Okay? If he doesn't have that as his motivator, um, you know, he may start out well. But, of course, as Jesus says in his parable, once, of course, the trial and tribulation come, the, G- the devil will come and snatch away the word. Now, so we ask these questions, we do our due diligence, we inquire of the man, but we recognize that we're not infallible in that. It's also very difficult because, of course, when we're young, we're very immature. Sometimes it may appear that the seeds of gifts are there, and we think, well, is this immaturity that he'll grow out of, or is this a sign of something more? Sometimes that's really hard to discern, right? And we want to be charitable and give the benefit of the doubt. But ordinarily, if you got any red flags about a person and a personality, slow things way down, right? Allow time for maturation. Nothing's done hastily. uh, But examining his motives, that's done at the outset. Okay, so there's no exam in his theology. There's no exam in his, uh, his abilities. He's not being asked to preach. When he comes under care, he's just interviewed as to especially his motives. Okay, so that's the first step. The next step is what we call licensure. And we covered some of this last time. And the licensure 
basically means that he is approved, formally approved, by the presbytery to preach the gospel with the authority of a licentiate among the churches. Okay, he's approved as a viable person to preach the gospel. And he's also, at that point, eligible to receive a call. Eligible to receive a call. Now, there's more procedure he has to go through once he receives the call, but he's eligible to get one. Now, keep in mind that in addition to calling a licentiate, a church can also call a minister who's already ordained, one that's without a call or even one that's serving at another church. Okay? You can do that, uh, but here we're talking about the, the regular process for licensure. So, in order to be licensed, uh, what do you have to do? Well, first there's academic requirements, intellectual requirements. Okay. That's not because we don't care about the heart. That's why that's put first. But if you're going to preach the gospel, the Presbyterians believe in an educated ministry. All right. If you're going to handle the word of truth, you're going to be a pastor scholar. Right. You're going to be able to understand the deep truths of the Christian faith. You're going to be able to read systematic theology. You're going to be able to understand it. You're going to understand apologetics. But more than that, you're also going to have a broad background in learning, liberal arts, broad education, and you're going to have a college degree. Now, let me say a couple things about a college degree. College degrees have fallen upon hard times. Why? Why are fewer and fewer people going to college? The economy makes a difference, but also academia has sort of fallen apart itself. Right. College is expensive. And what do you get for it? You get a lot of debt. Yeah, and you get indoctrination and gender studies. And then you work in an HR department and oppress people that have Christian principles. That's basically what colleges do. Now, not that, that, that's the joke, right? Um, at the same time, uh, college degrees, if you're going to be an engineer, if you're going to work in the hard sciences, if you're going to work in finance and those things, there still is clearly there. But the joke is, why do that? Especially if you could go into a trade and make money doing that, right? Why get a college degree in gender studies when you're just going to be a welder? You can make good money as a welder or a plumber or an electrician. I mean, that's my family. We grew up, we did drywall and painting, right? My dad, he, my dad, I'll tell you about, my father was in the Navy, and uh, he fought during the Vietnam War, but he was in submarines, so he didn't go into the jungle. But essentially, at the time, he fought communism. That's what it was, right, in, in Vietnam and then in, in Russia. He actually spied on the Russians in the Sea of Japan and got depth charged. So pretty cool, you know. I asked my dad, is it, really, is, it, is it really as bad, getting depth charged, is it really as bad as they show it in the movies? He said, oh, it's worse. <laughs> Rattle your teeth out of your head. Well, my dad told me, I said, Dad, why didn't you get a college degree? I said, well, <laughs> he said, I went to these countries and fought communism, and I saw what it did. I went, I went to the village, and there was sewage running through the streets. There was no infrastructure. The whole country was war-torn, and there was a dictator controlling everything, talking like they were gods. And then, when I go back home on the GI Bill, I go to Western Washington University up in Bellingham. Now, the joke about that is, you know the hate Ashbury District in San Francisco in the 1960s? The joke is, when that kind of wasn't cool anymore, everybody who was in that scene moved to Western Washington University in Bellingham. Okay, it's a very, very, very left-wing area. 
And my dad said to me, he said, you know, I got done fighting communism in the Navy, and I saw it firsthand, and then I'm taking classes from guys that just graduated from college. They're professors now. They've never been outside of Bellingham, and they're telling me how wonderful communism is. I said, I'm sorry, I'm not, I don't even care if this is free. I don't want anything to do with that. Right, so uh, I think my dad's sentiment there, and that was back in the early 1970s, hasn't gotten better, right? So we certainly can see why in that context, a college degree is, could basically amount to bunk, right? And certainly, if you knew as a young man that you wanted to work in a trade, and maybe school wasn't specifically your thing per se, yeah, I can see that. But at the same time, in the Christian tradition, there has been high value placed on education generally for your service as a Christian, right? And so that's why many Christian colleges offer liberal arts degrees uh, to their students. Uh, they've done a better job recently trying to be a little more focused in tying that to employment. <laughs> that is something you have to think about. But I do think a good Christian liberal arts college Providing general ed Christian education for your kid is really, really going to serve them well, even if it doesn't necessarily amount to a college degree. It's not it's like some kind of requirement, but the general value that I think we used to place on education, there's good reason why we don't today, but I would still say a liberal arts education, Christian liberal, and a good school, there's, I think there's great value uh, for us to have an educated um, membership in our church. And especially the case if you're going to be a seminary student. Now, what degree do you have to take? Well, you can take pre-seminary courses at a lot of Christian colleges. Um, many don't do that, though, because, of course, why take classes that you're going to take in seminary in college? Um, I was a philosophy major. Uh, I did that um, as I realized I was feeling a call to be a pastor, because I felt that would help prepare me intellectually for the rigor of thinking through the academics of theology, right? But many, um, many pastors were psychology majors, and psychology from a Christian perspective is a very, very useful um, tool for a pastor, especially when they're interacting with people and personalities and identifying those patterns. Okay, modern psychology, non-biblical psychology is an attempt to substitute a doctrine of sin for something else. A Christian psychology seeks to explore the different specific ways sin affects people biblically in terms of certain patterns. That's very, very useful. But nevertheless, it doesn't really matter. We need a college degree which shows a competence, an intellectual competence, uh, that is fit for being a pastor. Now, there are occasions where somebody may be self-taught, very, very learned, um, or at such of an age where it's not really practicable for them to go back and get a degree. Or maybe they didn't complete the degree, but got a lot of study done. Or maybe they're from a country where education system isn't the way it is. That can be waived, but it has to be a three-fourths vote of everybody there. Okay? And the same thing with seminary education. Um, I'm, if, you've ever, if you know the OPC history of the Gordon-Clark controversy, Gordon Clark was up for ordination in the OPC, and he didn't have a seminary degree, but he had taught philosophy and theology for like 20 years. Okay, so that was part of that discussion. Does he need a seminary education? Well, if he's a philosophy professor and has written widely on that, maybe that's a case where that can be waived. 
All right. Nevertheless, we believe in an educated ministry, right? The minister has to be competent to read theology, understand it, and uh, be able to, to teach it to others. All right, so that's kind of the first step. And also, he needs one year, at least one year in seminary. So he doesn't have to complete a seminary, but he should have at least one year. Okay, so he has to have at least stepped his foot, his toe in the water in order to have his theological education initiated and successfully completed that first year, right? So he's starting to show uh, that the, there's proof in the pudding, all right? Now, um, it goes on to um, discuss then, let's see here. The next thing that he needs to do is receive testimonials, right? So these are the academic requirements. Then these testimonials have to do with his life and service in the church, all right? And let's see. That the presbytery, it says, that they should inquire as to the grace of God in him and whether he be of such holiness of life as is requisite as is a minister in the, of the gospel. Um, and it says later that uh, by receiving testimonials or other means of the candidate's piety and exemplary life and his personal zeal for and experience in presenting the gospel to others. So uh, why does the presbytery depend upon testimonials, which would be a letter written by, say, an elder, pastor, a session, or a church member? Why would the presbytery depend upon testimonials? Mm -hmm. That's right. So keep in mind that when a church is first calling a pastor, a lot of times they really don't know anything about the guy, right? It's hard sometimes to get direct first-hand knowledge to assess for yourself whether the man is qualified. I know we're talking about licentiates here, but, but keep in mind, a lot of times, especially if you're calling a pastor from another church, what will happen is he candidates at your church, and he'll come out and preach and spend time with you. Um, sometimes it's just a few days. That's all that can be done. Sometimes it's a week or two, right? And that's to give you, as a church member, a first-hand look at the man and what he's like. But is that really enough? No. Would you marry somebody <laughs> if you only saw him for three days? Probably not, right? Well, these testimonials ensure that people who do know them and work with them closely and have observed their progress and know their strengths and their weaknesses and can have a very balanced view of that, right, can then present a recommendation as to whether this is a person over the big picture of their life, not just one at time when maybe they did really well, because, you know, even a really bad hitter will hit a home run once in a while, right? And if you see that hitter hit a home run, you're like, oh, let's sign him. New free agent, $30 million contract. Well, if you didn't know that he only hit one home run in five years, it's a bad contract, right? Or maybe it's a star player, but, you know, you watched him in one game and he struck out five times. Oh, that's not very good. We look at it over the big picture and we get testimonies multiple ones from, from different people. So usually there's a mentoring pastor who will write a testimonial, um, an elder or the session, and then certain members of the church who may have a particular connection or have been particularly blessed by that man will write a, te a testimonial. Right? Um, now, 
um, there's certainly always, not always, but there are t- times in the church where, you know, people might not have a positive view of somebody. They don't usually write testimonials for, for a person because these are positive, right? They're not, we don't take warning letters, right? If, if there was a warning, that would be taken up at the local level uh, before it got uh, to the higher level, right? So we have the academic requirements, but also the testimonials to ensure that he has the life, the service, the motives, Etc., etc., to serve in the Lord Jesus Christ and in his church. All right, after that, then, he then needs to be examined. So these are kind of the prerequisites. But then the licentiate needs to be examined by the presbytery. And how does that work? Well, the presbytery itself can examine them as a group. Some churches do that, like the Canadian Reformed churches, they examine candidates. Publicly, So they put the candidate up, and he has a public exam before the whole presbytery in every field of study. Right? So that would be examination by the whole presbytery. Or, and this is the way most presbyteries do it in our church, we entrust that work to a committee. It's called the Candidates and Credentials Committee. I'm a member of the Candidates and Credentials Committee in our presbytery, so I share in uh, the work uh, that has been entrusted to that committee to examine um, and care for and provide guidance and evaluation uh, to ministers. So I'm very familiar with the procedures and the processes uh, that we undergo. I've listened to a lot of sermons from a lot of candidates. Um, Sometimes that's a joy. Sometimes that's, well, less of a joy. (laughs) Right. But look, we all know with our children, um, it takes time for them to learn, right? you got to start somewhere. And I think even the world recognizes sometimes you have to fail to succeed. You have to get up and swing the bat. I remember my first sermon that I preached in seminary. Oh, man, was it terrible. <laughs> the second, third, fourth, and fifth aren't very good. and Maybe they're not that great right now, all right? But it takes time to grow and develop. And so that's what this process is for, is to help them grow and develop. All right, so what does that examination look like? Well, in section four, it says, the candidate for licensure should be examined by the presbytery or by committee in these things. English Bible. That's the first one. Does this man know the contents of the Bible? Is he familiar with the Bible? Okay. Now, you might say, well, I mean, come on. I grew up learning Bible stories from my youngest days. I've always known the Bible story. I can tell you the content of the Bible easy because I've learned this my whole life. Well, you've got to understand that <laughs> there are many men who go to seminary who are actually pretty new Christians. I was a really new Christian when I went to seminary. I've probably been a Christian for a Reformed Christian for like three and a half years, four years, for maybe four or five years. That's not very long. I didn't read the Bible growing up, and I was in a situation where I had learned a ton of theology, and I was eating up the Bible, but it wasn't deeply ingrained in me like it would be in somebody who grew up in the church. So you might think it's superfluous for a candidate to be examined in English Bible or unnecessary, but it's not. Right? We've got to be familiar with the content of the Bible. Uh, that's crucial in the pastoral ministry. Just being able, kind of off the top of your head, to, okay, here's a question about this, or here's this subject that I'm going to preach on. Well, where would I go? Oh, yeah, well, it's, it's in this book, it's in that book, it's in that book. And you can just do it out of your head. You don't need to go look up you know, in a search engine. It, it, it's ready at hand. All right, so first is English Bible. And we have a great English Bible exam. It's one of those exams that nobody can get a, 100% on. There's enough questions in there that are that are hard, that'll trip people up. But it's a very, very good exam, and it's a good workout um, in the general contents of the Bible. Next is ecclesiastical history. 
We don't understand the Bible simply on our own. We understand the Bible in the context of the church more broadly. Different times of history uh, create different controversies, different difficulties. They have different needs. We need to be familiar with how the doctrine of the church developed over history. Uh, Knowledge of history is wonderful for developing humility. You realize how dependent we are today upon the church in the past. Now, the church in the past isn't uh, authority equal to Scripture, right? But to inform us and to help us um, in in the company of many counselors, there's wisdom. What better company of counselors than uh, the great minds and the great stories of of church history? So in in addition to informing us, it also inspires us, helps us to see the patterns of suffering, of trial, of difficulty that the church has faced. And so therefore, we require candidates to be familiar uh, with with church history. And And I think in our presbytery, we break it up where we first have early church history up through like the first five to 10 centuries. Then we have medieval and Reformation and modern church history and OPC history as, as different things. Now, again, these, exam, these exams are general in the sense that they ask general questions about important figures that they should be familiar with and different controversies and things. And we're looking for, does, is this person show familiarity with a study of all these areas? Right? Now, very gifted candidates who have encyclopedic brains can write essay questions. <laughs> because they remember everything. Not every minister is going to be able to do that. Um, but nevertheless, we want to see familiarity with church history. Okay, theology. Now, this is an important one, because theology really gets to the heart of what does this man believe the Bible says? Now, this exam can't just be done by a committee. Okay? There's a written exam in theology that the committee does, but then there's a floor exam that cannot be done simply by a presbytery or by a committee in a presbytery. It has to be done by the whole presbytery. And it's quite something. The candidate has to study, prepare, and then stand in front of 40 other ministers and elders and be examined and ask questions. And the first part of the exam is where a member of the committee will go through a series of questions that try to cover comprehensively all areas of theology. And then after that, it's open to the floor. People can ask anything they want about this man's views in theology. Anything they want. Okay? Once in a while, you'll get someone who objects to a line of questioning and say, this isn't really appropriate uh, for a theological exam. Right? Um, sometimes that happens because they might think that minister is riding a hobby horse or anything like that. My own opinion on that is it should be wide open. Even if the question is arguably inappropriate or in, out of left field, I'm like, look, as a pastor, I get questions out of left field all the time, <laughs> right? I was just like, this is inappropriate. And what do I have to do as a pastor? Do I say, I'm sorry, that question is inappropriate. Be quiet. Really? Is that what you're going to do? No, you're going to try to find a pastoral, gentle way to answer and kind of redirect that question into a good answer and a helpful answer. So I want to see that guy up there do that. Even if this, my brother over here, always irritates me by asking crazy questions about his idiosyncratic views of things, I don't like that either. We need freedom of inquiry on these ministers. If we start restricting what kinds of questions can be asked, that's not good, right? I'd rather err on the side of being too broad with freedom of inquiry than open the door for things being too narrow. I've been there before where, because of course, (laughs) the question... 
What's a legitimate question? What's an illegitimate question? Who gets to decide that? Who gets to decide that? To me, if it's about theology, it's fair game. It's fair game. Right, let the guy ask the question. So, the, he has to answer questions in theology in a way that is consistent with the confession of faith and the catechisms of the church and shows competency. If he passes that exam, that means that a group of 40 men have listened to him and they've said, yeah, we've examined his views very carefully and we find him sound in the faith. Now, we don't grade these. We don't give one guy A plus and another guy D, right? We're looking for a level of competency. We recognize the diversity of gifts, and especially at different stages and times of their ministry. They're going to grow and develop. But at the same time, seminary is a special time, and the person in seminary, they're kind of hot off the theological presses. Right? And the general pattern, I'm not saying it should be true, but the general pattern for ministers with their theological and intellectual competency is not one where it just increases. You start on a pretty high level out of seminary because you've been deep in the waters of all this stuff. And over time, as the stress and the time and energy that you have to put into the pastoral ministry weighs on you, that kind of diminishes and your memory of what you learned fades. That's why ministers need to continue to refresh themselves in the knowledge of these things. Now, for me personally, I think it was about seven years. I had about seven years of ministry where Everything from seminary was just right at, right at my command. I could remember it all. I have a pretty good memory as far as intellectual things are concerned. Practical things, I'm terrible. Like, you know, my, you can ask my wife about it. Actually, no, don't ask my wife about that. <laughs> okay, I'm terrible. But I could remember. After about seven years, that's when I'm like, okay, I can remember that we talked about that, but i got to go get my notes. Okay? So we have a pretty high bar coming in that they're able to really, really know and understand uh, theology. Now, another thing about this. If 25% of the ministers and elders object to that theological exam and say it ain't good enough, he's not licensed. Okay, 66% is a supermajority. This is a super, supermajority. One-fourth of presbyters can vote no. All right? And that has happened before. And I'll tell you, especially if it's like 26% of ministers, man, it just seems to make everybody mad. It really does. I, I can remember one time I voted no on somebody, and there was just like six of us. And at the time, that was enough. And people, How do you vote no? Why are you putting a roadblock in this area? It's like, first of all, voting no isn't an absolute no. Voting no says it wasn't good enough, but let's have him come back and do it again next meeting. But my position was, well, you know, <laughs> when we license this guy, we're, we're saying he's ready to go, right? He's ready to receive a call. And you're telling me, and this, some other, other ministers would argue this, well, he, he'll grow out of that problem, and, and, and we'll talk to him, and, and, and he'll change his view on that, even though that wasn't consistent. I'm like, really? Are you sure? <laughs> Are you sure about that? I mean... I would often say to the minister, like, look, I agree with you, actually. I think it's probably likely that he's going to change his view on this and grow and develop. But why don't we make him do that first and then approve him? So it's not necessarily mean or unloving to tell a man up front, no. Now, it could be. 
Maybe you don't like the guy. Maybe you don't like the seminary that he went to. Maybe you don't like the church that he's at. Maybe you have a history of conflict with a pastor who's his mentoring pastor, and that's sticking in your craw, and you're still mad at that guy, so you're just going to vote no for anything that that guy's attached to. Well, clearly, that's not a good idea, right? That's bad. That's giving into motives for vengeance and jealousy and envy and all those things. Okay? But there's a reason why there's such a high bar, right? The, the minority is granted rights such that if they're not satisfied, he's got to come back. Because, of course, we want as much consensus as, as possible on that. All right, so uh, that's the processes in, in terms of uh, licensing the candidate to preach the gospel. Okay? He's examined an English Bible, ecclesiastical history, theology, but then also the original languages of Scripture. He's got to be able to work with the original Greek and Hebrew. Now, um, not every minister can sit down and open up their Hebrew Bible and read it cover to cover. Okay? I can't do that. I can kind of do that with the New Testament uh, because I'm better at Greek than I am at Hebrew, being able to just sit down and read it without much help. I'm also more familiar with the English text of the New Testament. So a lot of times where there's gaps where I don't know that word, I, can, I know where I'm at and I can remember the English. Right? We're not looking at whether that man can sit down and read his Hebrew and Greek Bible without any helps. I probably can only think of a handful of men that could do that. But can he work with and engage the original language? Now, why is that important? We should know the, the Bible and the language that God inspired. Right. We believe that the Bible is inspired and inerrant in what we call the autographa, okay, the original manuscripts. Right? We obviously don't have the actual autographer available to us anymore. But we do have that having been providentially kept pure through the ages in the various copies right, and well-attested um, manuscripts that are out there. There are more manuscripts to attest to the validity of the New Testament than any other ancient document by far, by far. A lot of the ancient uh, Greek historians and Greek, Greek ta classical texts, there's probably only four or five texts that survive, and many of them date to well after they were originally written. Uh, the New Testament dates much of it to the first or second century, within the generation of its first having been written. Okay? In other words, if the, the classic uh, statement for apologetics in this regard is, if you do not believe that the original manuscripts and the content of them are available to and well attested, then you cannot accept any historical document whatsoever as valid. You can't. You're basically saying it's impossible to attest to an ancient document. Of course, nobody questions Homer's Iliad. Nobody raises a question about that or Shakespeare's plays. But, of course, given the seriousness of the claims of the Bible, it's amazing how even though... Um, even though it's so well attested, uh, people still uh, reject it. I mean, it's, it's the kind of claims that are out there are crazy. I mean, you still hear people say that the New Testament was written by Constantine. Like, seriously? You think that the New Testament was written by Constantine? Because of what's that crazy book that was written that came into a movie? Da Vinci Code. You know, oh, yeah, it's all a hoax. It was all written. Then it's like, okay, you understand that... That's fantasy. <laughs> you understand that we actually have texts that can be hard dated to the first century. But nevertheless, the blindness of sinful man, it really comes down to the fact that the claims of the Bible are such 
that people just do not want to listen to him, that they will accept utter absurdities, historical absurdities, in order to resist uh, hearing about it. Okay, so then, um, additionally, after these exams, he has to also preach a sermon, an essay on a theological theme, and provide an exegesis of Hebrew or Greek uh, from a passage of Scripture. He will also give a devotional message on the floor of Presbytery so that everybody can hear him bring God's word to see whether he has the gifts to do so. Okay. Now, once that's done, he's then licensed. And the licensure itself uh, formally consists of his taking vows with respect to his duties. Okay. Namely, uh, do you believe in the scriptures to be the word of God, the only infallible rule of faith and practice? Second, do you sincerely receive and adopt the confession of faith and catechisms as containing the system of doctrine taught in the scriptures? It's an important phrase in the Presbyterian tradition, the system of doctrine taught in the scriptures. We don't believe that the confession, the ipsissima verba, which is the very words of the confession, are inspired. But we do believe that it articulates clearly and understandably a system of truth, a system of doctrine that is biblical, right? And I think I mentioned this last week. If we don't believe that we can repeat in our own human words the infallible truth of God, then we can't really know anything about God, right? So we're, we're acknowledging, yeah, it's not... Um, verbally inspired by God, but it faithfully teaches the system of truth taught in the scriptures. Now, um, some people try to drive a truck through this. Right? And one, one uh, phrase I'm hearing a lot now by PCA brothers, that's our fraternal denomination, sister denomination, is they will speak of confessional absolutes. That's what we need to rally around, what we call the confessional absolutes. And I'm like, okay, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I don't want to compromise the confessional absolutes, but that's different language than system of doctrine. System of doctrine implies something comprehensive, right? It's a system. System and doctrine implies that there's interrelated components in that system that work together. And system of doctrine, uh, you know, let's borrow a phrase out of the debates on creation and design, right? Irreducible complexity. Now, can your engine run if you're missing certain parts? Yeah. Can your engine run if you don't have any oil in it? Yeah. But then what happens if you don't put oil in it? It'll burn up. I remember the first car I owned burned oil really bad. It was a 1984 Dodge Omni. Amazing car. It's basically a Volkswagen Rabbit under a different branding. It's a hatchback, white car. I remember one time my car died on the way home from school. I was like, why did my car die? The red light came on. So I went and I checked the oil. It was almost entirely empty of oil. So I walked over to the gas station, put oil in there. It was fine. Okay? But if I pushed it any farther, it's not, it's not going to go. So certainly, confessional absolutes, we want to hold to those. But the Reformed faith is something more than just a set of confessional absolutes. It's a system of truth, right, that involves our doctrine of God, His decree, His providence, the way He created, His covenant, 
right? The doctrine of election, the grace of God, faith, repentance, justification, adoption, sanctification. These things aren't separate things. They all go together. There's a logic to the way it's interconnected. And so when we examine what's that phrase system of doctrine mean, it means the system that's taught in the confession. And it means that that confession articulates that system. Not that there are a certain set of absolute core articles that we can highlight as really, really important, but the rest are kind of up for negotiation. No, the whole confession articulates that system. Now, those of you who might be familiar with church history, what's another phrase that's very similar to confessional absolutes? Fundamentals. Okay, the fundamentals. You'll hear this at times where the church desires to be orthodox, but also doesn't want to be too narrow or be perceived as too narrow. What they end up doing is creating a confession in the confession, a smaller subset of affirmations that are considered adequate to be faithful, allowing a broader diversity of views. That's almost always a recipe for liberalism. Almost always. Now, I'm not saying the people motivated in that direction are liberal. Many times they're not. They're actually personally quite conservative. The issue isn't their own view. It's how are we going to be perceived, narrow or broad? And do not underestimate the power of that weighing on a minister, especially one that's concerned to, um, especially when the church is under pressure and it's being slandered as being narrow-minded and bigoted. You have pressure on you to try to um, signal <laughs> to the world that you're not. Okay. No, we believe that the Bible teaches a system of truth. And we believe the confession summarizes that system of doctrine. And so we ask men to adopt that confession as it contains that system. Now, people sometimes ask me, does that mean you can't have a scruple or an exception to the confession? Well... Again, we, we acknowledge that the words of the confession are not divinely inspired, so they're not perfect, they're not infallible. And there are times where a man, a man might scruple a phrase in the confession, right? Uh, you know, I think some minor ones, um, for example, the confession speaks of a covenant of works. Some people have taken exception to that phrase, and they say, I don't really like the phrase covenant of works. I don't think that's clear enough. I'd rather speak of covenant of creation, well, well, that's just a scruple over language, right? And in fact, the Confession of Faith only says that it's commonly called a covenant of works. So it doesn't insist upon the language. So things like that that are scruples over language but don't affect the system, that's okay. And the presbytery has to judge whether that's the case, right? But we um, hold to that system of truth uh, contained in the, in the Confession. All right, so once he's licensed, he's approved to preach, but he's not done yet. Right? He has to show that his services are edifying to the church in the way that the church that he desires that the church will call him, and he has to undergo a season of a trial uh, in order to test that. Um, now, um, how long does that take? Well, there's no set time. Okay, it says in the confession or in the book of church order that over, when over a considerable period of time, either licentious services do not appear to be edifying to the church or he's not actively seeking a call, the presbytery may, if proper, recall his license. The presbytery can revoke and recall the license, but it says the period of time ordinarily should not exceed two years. Because you want to have at least two years um, of that, but sometimes 
I would say, I don't say usually, but it's not abnormal for that to take longer. All right, that's Lysinger. Uh, we got briefly any questions before we close? Yes? Yeah, uh, it seems to me this whole system uh, didn't show up overnight. It came up, probably evolved over a pretty long period of time. Yep. Um, uh, the OPC is a fairly young church, but Presbyterians have gone back for you know, yep. many, many years. And I'm thinking some of the aspects of this are probably pretty recent too, because, uh, for instance, a college degree, uh, requiring a college degree, uh, that didn't, couldn't have possibly have come about until about the mid-1800s, because people like Simon Greenleaf and uh, uh, Joseph Story, who uh, was Supreme Court Justice, those two were uh, considered the founders of uh, the Harvard School of Law. There was no uh, college degree to get a law degree or a medical degree until about the mid-1800s. Yeah, I mean, yeah, so I mean, the short answer to your question is the Presbyterian order for this really goes back to about the 16th, 17th century. And I think the most helpful um, document you can look at that's probably the fountain of the way this is done is called the Directory for Church Government and Ordination of Ministers from the Westminster Assembly. And uh, in that, it goes into detail as to you know, how um, ministers are to be called. And um, just off the top of my head, it does talk about um, having to have um, kind of an undergraduate uh, degree or, um, or um, education. Because, you know, the Cambridge and Oxford, you know, there are levels of education that you get a bachelor's, a master's, a doctor. You know, that goes way back in terms of uh, European history. So um, they, they wouldn't call it necessarily a university degree, but the equivalent kind of thing was expected. Uh, very briefly, this became an issue in the 1700s because um, when the uh, revivals were taking place, many of the ministers who were in favor of revivals didn't graduate from the more established schools. They went to something called the Log College, which was just kind of considered a farmer's type education. So uh, they got in a brouhaha over that, but that gets us too deep. All right, we're over time. I'm just going to dismiss you because uh, people are coming in. So.